0: Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to learn from your Word. Um, God, tonight we hear about your love, your love that allows you to make covenant with humanity. Uh, what kind of God makes a covenant with people? People that he knows are flawed, people that he knows uh, are broken, and yet you do it because you love us. And and so, Lord, we just thank you for that covenant, the covenant that you've made with many of us in this room. And and Lord, I pray that uh, tonight, through Judy's teaching and through your Word and through our discussions, that you may be glorified and Your word may be treated appropriately and and that our hearts and our minds will be set upon you in a way that honors you. And so be with Judy. Allow her words to be clear and compelling. Um, Yeah, and Lord, just thank you for her diligence and her hard work to present the word as a workman who need not be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God, as your word tells us to do. It's in your son's name I ask these things. Amen. I just wanted to start tonight with just a a couple of minutes of us taking uh, just a breather to just get all the details that are up in your mind and brain about tonight and what else you've got to do tonight and what you have to do tomorrow. And to just uh, watch this little video and reflect. On God, just to have a kind of you and God moment here, and uh, then we'll start in in on our lesson. So, let's listen to this. Okay, that's great just to focus in on God and his name. Um, It has been said that the devil is in the details. I always put the devil's name in very small print just to uh, irk him. But heaven knows that we are thick in the details here in this part of Exodus. In fact, I'm really surprised that this many of you showed up to talk about more details tonight because there is a lot here. We're continuing tonight to talk about the Mosaic Covenant, which is the section of this scripture that began in chapter 19, and we're going to conclude the section on the covenant per se tonight in chapter 24. But they are at Mount Sinai. This is about three months out of Egypt, and they're actually going to spend 11 months here at Mount Sinai. They do not leave Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. And so as we're doing this, we're not aware of how much time is spent here. And the portion at Mount Sinai in Exodus takes up 55% of the book. So this is an important thing to God. And we tend to look at all these details as dry and dusty and distant from us. But what I want to contend tonight is that the devil is not in these details. But God's love is in these details. God in love is setting in motion his plan that's going to provide national life and worship life for these people until the set time which Galatians 4:4 4, 4 tells us for the Messiah to be born. Jesus was born under the law of this covenant. Now, granted, by the time he was born, there was a lot of misinterpretation and a lot of adding to, but it was this covenant he was born under. Now, the detail reveal is that God desires to dwell, dwell in relationship with sinful men. And the details reveal to us the great lengths that God went to and how willing, how careful, how patient he is to bring about the possibility of what is truly an impossibility of a holy God having a relationship with fallen humanity where he can dwell with them. Now, the truth is that God, the creator, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God— desires to dwell with you, with every one of you in this room. And the truth is that even at the moment of God giving all these details of this covenant, he had in his mind a relationship down in the future with you and dwelling with you. Now, in this covenant, no one is yet addressing God as father, but it is in God's mind for that to be the case eventually. So what we see in this covenant is God revealing his fatherly love, looking forward to the day that it can be true for all of humanity to be able to address him as father. So let's dive into the detail, the love detail of our verses for today. We're gonna do it in three sections. The details of God's love revealed through care. That's chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. Then the details of God's love reveal through commitment, chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. And then the details of God's love reveal through come near. And that'll be 24, the first two verses, and then dropping down 9 through 18. So God's love revealed through the care details involves really four Ps, his promises, his provision, his protection, and his presence. And it starts with an angel who is this angel? Let's look at details about the angel, and let's look at him here in just taking verses 20 through 23. Now, the way I printed this up is I put all the personal pronouns and possessive pronouns in red. And so when you read these verses, all of those red pronouns refer to God. It is God who is saying that. And so when you read these verses and you realize that, It shows God and this angel are very tight. The angel is sent by God. The angel is worthy of obedience. He is not to be ignored. Disrespecting actions negative toward the angel will need forgiveness. And saying that the angel will not pardon or overlook transgression implies that the angel has the ability to pardon or overlook sin. Now, this makes it clear that this is not a created being, for never in Scripture is there a created angel who is given the power to pardon or to give forgiveness. Angels in Scripture are messengers and servants. So the case can be made that this angel is pre-incarnate Jesus Meaning Jesus before he came to earth to be born as a baby. Now, the fancy word for that is theophany, and that may be a detail you don't care about knowing, but the definition of it is that it's a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, that is tangible to the human senses in the Old Testament. And it's rare, but there are several instances in it. Now, the central thought in these verses is is the passage, my name is in him. Now, as we looked at that video about God's name, God's name reveals his nature, his being, his essence, his person. And so the fact that God says, my name is in him, is another detail that would support that this is pre-incarnate Jesus. Now, let's think about it. The Hebrews are rescued slaves— with very little experience in decision-making, no experience in being landowners, little experience in how to travel as a large group, and not too much experience because having been slaves to know how to get along with their neighbors. So God is providing for them, not just any angel, but Jesus to be with them. This is his presence with them. And notice where it says this angel is going to go. Behind them beside them? No. Before them. It says it twice in these verses. And the angel is going to bring them to a place that they just happen to find, that they just happen to stumble on? No. A place that God has prepared for them. So how does this detail connect to us? Whether we're single, we're married, we're divorced, we're widowed, we're getting old, whatever— are there any details about God going before us, preparing a place for us, overcoming our enemies? Well, when we look in the New Testament, John 13, 13 tells us that the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide us, he will go before us. A guide is someone who's ahead of you to point the way out for you. So we don't have an angel or even Jesus as an angel, we have the Holy Spirit to go before us. Any details about a prepared place? John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So whatever the enemies, whatever the temptations, whatever the ites, like all these people groups, that line up against us, he is obviously stronger than because he says he can bring us to that prepared place. And in another detail about that prepared place is Revelation 21.4 where it says that he, meaning Jesus, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All those things will be gone forever. That is a verse that just oozes God's love to me. Now, how about details here of his loving care and protection and provision? I've listed all the wills from these verses, 20 through 33, here in chapter 23. So the ones for protection are all about the enemies, and God names them. So what does this detail about these enemy groups in the land show us about God? Well, God knew who was there. And if you research these people groups, which I did look up each one of them, They all had different characteristics as a people group. Some were hunters, some were conquerors, some were farmers, but they all had this one thing in common. They did not follow the God of creation, but they had created gods for themselves. But God knew who they were, where they were, what they were doing, what they were worshiping. And here's another really important thing God knew. God knew the exact time for judgment to come to them. God woos, but he is just, and there is a time that his wrath meets rebellion. Did God love these people groups? Yes, he loved Pharaoh, and he loved them. But because from Genesis 12 on, God in his revealed word is going to focus on one distinct people group, one nation, that he is going to then have show the rest of the world who he is, God doesn't tell us all the side stories and the back stories here. So we don't know all that he did amongst these people groups. But because he reveals his character continually from Genesis to Revelation, we know God loves the world. And you can find examples of what their pagan worship was like All through the Old Testament, and I just jotted down some from Joshua, where it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, they raised up altars for Baal, their sons passed through the fire, which means dead. And that uh, what they believed was that nature was full of all these spirits that needed appeasing. And they appeased them by infant sacrifices, sexual orgies, practicing sorcery. And they thought all of that would make nature be kind to them. Their departure from the God of creation severely affected their societies. And they had extreme violence and bloodshed in their cultures. So then God, besides giving caring detail about his uh, protection of them, he also gave caring detail about his provision for them. And so this included, I will bless your bread and water. This was just a reminder. He had provided bread and water for them all the way to Sinai. He's just reminding them he's going to He did that before. He can still do it. He's going to take sickness away from them, inclusive of miscarriage and barrenness. And he's going to have them fulfill their days. He's going to let them live to an old age. And then there's this really sweet detail that he's going to drive out the enemies little by little. Israel's numbers are not as great as all these people groups that are going to be in the land. And God doesn't want the land empty and vacant and uncared for, nor does he want it overtaken by wild animals. And he's going to do this little by little so that they can increase, that's the fertility promise, and care for their families and the land. The land that God was preparing for them was big and spacious. It wasn't skimpy. Do you realize that what God is preparing for you in eternity is not going to be skimpy? It's going to be generous. And that even now, as we follow him on this journey here, he will do more than we ask or imagine. Do you ever feel like God works slowly, little by little? Do you ever stop to think about that that's his grace and love because he knows what you can handle and he knows what growth you need for what is ahead. Growing us little by little makes us stay focused on him, and it makes us stay dependent on him. Praise him for the little by little. It is not a sign of disfavor. It is a token of his love. Now, what was to be the response, the faith response to this caring, loving God? Well, God gives a list of what he expected from them. They were to obey. They were not to rebel. They were not to bow down or serve the enemy's gods. They were to overthrow them. They were to tear down their pillars. Their pillars were grotesquely sexual uh, aberrations. So, and then he said, no covenant with the enemies. So essentially, what he's asking them is to make God number one in their hearts and have no other gods before them or make any idols now, if you compare the list of what God says, I will, and then you compare what he's asking of the people, the people are not getting shortchanged. Do you ever believe in the lie that God is out to shortchange you? That he's asking more of you than he is willing to give to you? That's a wrong conclusion about God. You're missing his heart of love when you feel that way about him. Now let's look in chapter 24 at the details of God's love through commitment. We're going to go through verses 3 through 8 first. This is a ratification of the covenant. And so three words here that we're going to look at concerning this God's love revealed through commitment. That's clarity, choice, and costly. So let's begin with the clarity part. God in love was committed to making the covenant clear. So let's just review how clear he made it. First of all, God spoke the Ten Commandments himself. Then Moses came down the mountain, and he orally relayed all of the covenant to them. Then afterward, Moses wrote down all the words of the covenant. By the way, Moses was able to do this because he had been well-schooled in the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, in Egypt, And probably when he left there, he took papyrus and writing utensils with him. God had him prepared for that. But when I was studying this, I just reflected on, what if Moses had just lived out his life as a prince in Egypt with being educated just in Egypt's three R's? He would have probably just dropped off in history as some unknown prince in Egypt. But God had a plan and purpose for him And God was going to school him in his three R's here in Exodus, in his rescue, his redemption, and his revelation. And it made me think about in my own life, what am I basing my self-worth and my value? Is it on the three R's that we commonly pick up in our education? Or am I going to make God's three R's the focus of my life? Am I going to be about joining him in his rescue of others, about proclaiming his redemption, about learning and teaching and memorizing and meditating on it? And I have found in my life that contemplating that question changes my choices. It changes what I do with my spare time and my daydreaming and my energy But then let's go back to his clarity. So Moses writes it down, and then during the ratification process, after the blood is sprinkled on the altar, before it's sprinkled on the pillars, not the pillars, the scrolls and the people, Moses reads it to them. So that's a fourth time. And then Moses is going to go back up the mountain, and God's going to put it in stone. So we have five things of where God is making this clear. So think about uh, contracts today and about coupons. What do they do with the details? They hide them in small print like I do the devil's name. Have you ever gotten trapped by the small print? I'm usually in the grocery store line with all these things that I think I'm going to get discounts on, and I hadn't read the small print. I'm holding up everybody while they say, oh, no, you had to have done this, this, and this. God is not like that. God doesn't do small print. He is not trying to trick or allure these people. He wants them to fully know what he's asking of them. He's being very clear. Now, in the New Testament, the new covenant replaces this Mosaic covenant. And so, when you hear the words, the old covenant and the new covenant, the old covenant is this covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But it is replaced when Jesus comes with the new Covenant covenant. And really what the new covenant is, is the gospel. And just think about how clear God makes the gospel. If you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we're doing this year on the journey, watch for how clear he makes this new covenant, what it's going to be like. And then all through the epistles, it's clear, being made clear. And then even in Revelation, it is being made clear. So we just see that when God makes a covenant, he's not trying to hide something. He makes it very clear. Then our second word here is choice. God's love and the details of commitment offered the people a choice to respond and receive the covenant. And three times they did this. They responded in chapter 19, verse 8. It says they all responded together. We'll do everything the Lord has said. In chapter 24, verse 3, after Moses had told them orally what it had said, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Then after the sprinkling of the blood on the altar and Moses reading the scrolls to them again of the covenant, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. And this time they added, we will obey. Now this Mosaic covenant, does not justify people for salvation. That justification in the Old Testament came from the people believing God that he would provide the perfect sacrifice that could pay the penalty for sin. This covenant was to help them live as a nation. This covenant was to help them know how to worship him where he could dwell with them. And this covenant was to show that God was holy And for them to understand what sin was so that they recognize their need for a perfect sacrifice. Now, in the New Testament, we have the choice of responding to God's loving commitment to His clear new covenant. Check out the details that you see about that. Whosoever will may come, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Uh, As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the children of God. So, not, if you have not, this year you've been coming, and you have not yet responded to that New Testament covenant, and you're confused about it, or you're just not clear on what it is, come and talk to one of us, to your leader, to one of us. We would love to show you the details about that in the New Testament. Now, our third word here is that God's loving, love exhibited through commitment was costly, It involved worship through sacrifice, and it cost the blood of something innocent. So it says that the next morning, Moses rose up early to prepare for worship, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and then he uh, placed 12 pillars. Now, the altar is going to represent God at this ratification of the covenant, and the pillars are going to represent the 12 tribes of the new nation. And then Moses sent some young men to bring back some animals, and they offered a burnt offering and peace offering to the Lord. Now, the difference in these offerings is that the burnt offering was entirely burned on the altar. It is the only sacrifice that is entirely consumed on the altar. And what it foreshadows is the total sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And the burnt offering symbolized that the one who was worshiping by offering that must hold back nothing when coming to God. It was like a dedication of everything to the Lord. And we too, in the New Testament, are challenged to do that. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God that's holy and acceptable to him. And then the peace offering did not have to be totally consumed on the altar. Part of it was, and then the other part could be shared as a meal by the offerer with his family or those he was in fellowship with. So it was a festive offering, and it was an offering of gratitude. And it kind of represented that they were grateful they could even be part of this covenant that God was willing to make with them. So Moses drained all the blood. And he divided it into two parts, and he sprinkled half of it on the altar. And that sprinkling symbolized God's commitment to the covenant and the things that he had said he would do, God's loving commitment to teach them about himself and themselves. Then after this, Moses picked up the scrolls where he had written down everything about the covenant. He read it to the people. They responded their choice once again. And it was a unanimous declaration of publicly saying, we give ourselves to following the Lord. Then he took the other half of the blood, he sprinkled it on the scrolls and on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now, if we look forward to the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we are justified to salvation by looking back at the cross and the atoning blood of Jesus. That wasn't a shadow. It wasn't a foreshadowing. But Jesus' blood was the perfect sacrifice that could be totally accepted by God to remove the penalty of sin. So we see in 1 Corinthians 11:25 25, that Jesus took the cup and he said, "'This cup is the new covenant in my blood.'" Now, God's loving commitment to this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was preparation for that event when Jesus stood up to do that that night. And Jesus' death and resurrection, because that would totally ratify the new covenant, because it would have been purchased by Jesus' blood. So God was pointing in doing this ratification to a time When he himself in love would come. And he would be the one on the altar because he loves the world. And the details here show God's love in that commitment to making it, to keeping it, to fulfilling it. He was committed here to what it would cost him to do that. And as we follow it through the Old Testament, it cost God because they were quick to say they would obey, but they were slow to learn they could not do it without depending totally on him. But also, he was showing here, he was willing to do what it would cost him in the future to uh, ratify the new covenant. Now, let's look at the details of God's love revealed through his invitation to come near. So we're going to look in chapter 24 at verses 1 and 2, and then um, drop down to 9 through 18. Now, verses 1 and 2 here actually follow what happened in 23, and it's kind of like you stop by the desk for your next appointment when you're leaving the doctor. This invitation was to Moses, his brother, his two nephews, and 70 elders, one of whom was Joshua, to come up the mountain. And it included a very special appointment for Moses to come alone near to the Lord on top of the mountain. Now, all of these details in this coming near section reveal God's loving acceptance of Israel's response to the covenant because he's going to show them what it will be like to have God dwell among them. They've ratified this covenant. Now God's going to show them, this is what it's going to be like. I will be able to dwell with you. So I think there's four uh, words we want to look at here in this come near section and that's see, S-E-E, still, S-T-I-L-L, and safe. They were going to be able and, to come near and see God and God was going to allow this so that it would deepen their trust for the future so that when they finally do move away from Mount Sinai and start in to get there and conquer the land, they will remember they saw God. Now the arrangement up on the mountain is a mirror of what the tabernacle is going to be like. The largest group of people would be down at the bottom, like in the outer court of the tabernacle. These elders and the uh, two sons and Aaron, Moses, and so on, going up to the holy place is what that would would be in the tabernacle. And then Moses, as a type of Christ, is going all the way to the holy of holies, and so. That is what the tabernacle is going to be like, except instead of God just being up there on the mountain, he is willing to come down even further. Now, this group, when they went up the mountain a ways, they saw something of God. Now, what all they saw is not clear because the only thing they describe was God's feet and this paved work of sapphire stone that was dazzling under his feet that was as clear as the sky itself. But they did not see his full presence or they would have been destroyed. But feet is kind of fitting. Uh, Psalm 7, 7 says that we, his redeemed people, will assemble at his feet. And so he may have been seated on the throne and that's why they only saw his feet, but he was high, but that's what they saw. That's the only thing they describe. Now, after this, They came down some. There was a supper, and they supped in God's presence. Now, this was not like God sat down and ate and drank with them, but his presence was there with them. That was very typical for covenants. God had fellowship with them, and they probably ate the part of the meat from the peace offering that didn't have to be totally burned but could have been roasted well. We have a meal ahead of us in God's presence because we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Revelation 19.9 tells us, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will be able to enjoy that in his presence. Now, after the meal, God said to Moses, Come near to me on the mountain. And he's going to give him tablets of stone so that he could go back down and teach the people. So Moses instructs the elders remaining below, if anything goes wrong with the people, just take it to Aaron and her in his absence. So uh, stay tuned to see how that went. We'll, we'll see that soon. And Joshua went up with him a little ways, but then Moses went higher, and a cloud covered the mountain, and he went into that cloud. And he stayed in that cloud for six days. It was a time of preparation, and it was a time for Moses to literally be still and to know more about God. Now, I opened tonight with that two-minute video asking you just to reflect on God's name and to set aside all the details swirling in your mind. Did you get antsy in those two minutes kind of thinking, well, let's move on? It is hard to make time to be still before God. And I, I know that because it's true for me. I know it's true for you because you're women, and we just it is hard to do. But I just want to encourage you as you think about starting your day or even when you're starting to pray to just take even 60 seconds and just think on some part of God's name to remind you of who he is, what he is. And that will even change how you pray or how you go through your day. But six days of waiting, and then on the seventh day, God called Moses, and Moses stepped into the glory of God, and he was safe. Moses was safe in the glory of God, but to all those people down at the base of the mountain, as they looked up, that glory of God looked like a consuming fire. Because of God's love, You and I are going to be safe in God's glory when he calls us to come near him because of Jesus' death providing a way for us to come to him with boldness and not fear. Jesus came so we don't have to fear the unapproachable glory of God, that consuming fire, but we can come to him as our father. Now, Moses was on top of that mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai those 40 days. Do you think Moses got bored and just kind of thought about saying, hey, been nice to be here, but I really need to get back? No, I think Moses was totally unaware of 40 days passing by. He was so delighting himself in the Lord and getting all the instructions. I think Moses would be the loudest singer on a Sunday when we sing that worship song about better is one day in your court than thousands elsewhere because he actually was there in God's court. Moses was in the glory of God, and when Moses comes down, there's no description from Moses about it. He didn't come back and write a book about it. try to sell it as a movie script. Paul says of his trip to God's glory in 2 Corinthians 12.3 that he heard things too sacred to put into words, things that a person is not even permitted to speak. And in Daniel's vision, when he saw the glory of God, an angel had to come to strengthen him several times. I think God's glory falls into that category of 1 Corinthians 2.9 where it says eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared. I think God's glory is undescribable, And that's why we're so confused about when they saw the blue sapphire, we don't really understand that. And when we read in other places where they, they saw some part of God, it's undescribable, And I think when you and I uh, are there in his glory, even as women, we will be speechless. And that will be saying something. God had lots for Moses to learn and carry back about worship. God was going to explain how to build a tabernacle that would move with them. It's literally a tent moving with them. And how God could dwell with them apart from the mountain. The word tabernacle actually means to dwell with. So, spoiler alert, get ready for the last chapter in Exodus. We'll come back to this glory of God. Now, 40 as a number in Scripture is typically representative of a testing. Was this 40 days to test Moses? I don't think so. I think the 40 days was to test the people down below. So, stay tuned for how they did on that test. Now, one other detail about the glory of God from Revelation 21, verse 23, it says that the New Jerusalem, the city of the New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord will give it its light. God, in love, gave all of this law and instructions in detail. God does not change in character, He is still loving. He is still lovingly caring for his flock in detail. He is still committed to his children in detail. And he still is calling, come near in detail. I tell you something fun to do is we read this and it seems dry and a little dusty to us. But something fun to do is to read um, Psalm 119 because it's about someone who got it, that God's love was in the details of the covenant, and that was King David. And so he wrote down 176 verses about his delight and his joy in the law. And it's fun to read in the message just because it's easier to uh, read quickly. And I'm just going to read you a few sentences. And so just think about how it's when we're reading the details, that we might have one emotion But as we grasp God's love for us in giving that detail, it can drive us to other emotions. So here are some things he says in Psalms 119 from the message that David says about the law. He says, I am walking steadily on the road revealed by God. I'm blessed to follow his directions. I can walk straight on the road that he has set before me. God, you have prescribed the right way to live. Help my steps be steady and stay on the course you have set. I thank you for speaking straight from your heart. I want to learn the pattern of your righteous ways. I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm going to carefully read the map of your word. I'm going to be single-minded in my pursuit of you. Don't let me miss all the road signs that you've posted. I've banked your promises in the bank vault of my heart so that I won't be bankrupt. God, train me in your ways of wise living. So sometimes when we read these passages of Scripture, it helps us just to read something that gives us another viewpoint on it of when we can grasp what God was really trying to do in uh, giving it to us. So my prayer for you tonight is that in the details of Exodus, you see God's love. Because really, these details are God's way of saying to you, to each one of you, will you be my valentine? I have done it all so that you could be mine. Don't skip the details in his word. They reveal his love. Let me pray for you. Lord, we are in awe of who you are and how little we can grasp of it. But Lord, it is a privilege just to grasp even the least bit because it is truth and it is pure and it is holy and it is so reflective of your immense everlasting love for us. I pray that as the groups discussed tonight, that they would just have a good time looking at the details, thinking about what does it show about you and your love for them. And as we drive home, Lord, that we would just want to cry out your name to you and reflect on who you are and cast our focus away from all the details that seem to bog us down in life and choose to reflect on your detail that can lift us up and encourage us and empower us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.